0: Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. Yeah. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we share the story of the murder of Miriam Carey, a 34-year-old mom who drove from Connecticut to Washington, D.C., with her 13-month-old daughter in the backseat. Miriam made a U-turn at a checkpoint near the White House and set off a series of events that would lead police to firing 26 bullets into Miriam's car. Could Miriam's death have been prevented? This is Miriam's story. The events that would come to define Miriam Carey in the public eye are far from the woman that her family knew. In the months leading up to the incident, Miriam Carey had been, according to her family and friends, struggling with depression after giving birth to her daughter, but was getting better. Miriam was originally from Brooklyn, New York, where she had lived most of her life. She went to school there at a local community college where she received an associate's degree in dental hygiene. And then she also attended Brooklyn College, where she majored in health nutrition science and graduated in 2007. People who knew Miriam said that she was ambitious and she was a focused young woman. She had dreams of furthering her career and becoming perhaps a dentist herself. By all accounts, Miriam had led a normal, happy life. Now, while researching this case, I came across photo after photo of Miriam smiling, living her life. Miriam had lived in New York her whole life, like I said, but she wanted to buy a home. And we all know that real estate in New York is extremely high. So in 2010, Miriam decided to move to Stanford, Connecticut, which is about 40 miles from New York. Now, in a report done by the Washington Post, Her sister said that she still came home pretty much every weekend to visit them and their mom, who was still living in Brooklyn. But Miriam did start a life in Connecticut, and that's where she met the man that would become her daughter's father, Eric Francis. Eric was a lot older than Miriam. According to the Washington Post article, he was about 21 years older than her. And her family said that wasn't really her usual style when dating. She didn't tend to date men that were that much older than her. So this was new. But she was living in a new area and, you know, a new city. And, you know, sometimes with that comes a lot of other changes. And she might have just met somebody that she really liked. So according to her family, Miriam didn't really talk a lot about her relationship with Eric. But eventually Miriam would get pregnant. And in August 2012, she gave birth to their child, whom she would name Erica. Now, not too long after giving birth, Miriam began to experience symptoms of postpartum depression. Now, this is extremely common and can really show up in various forms. Apparently, one in 500 women who give birth experience postpartum depression. And Miriam, sadly, was one of those women. And in the months following the birth of her daughter, Miriam struggled with her depression. But her doctors had placed her on medication and given her a treatment plan that would kind of have her weaning off the medications that she was on after a year. And so according to her mom and her sister, she was beginning to get better. It's important to note that during this time that Miriam had been struggling with her mental health, she was still maintaining her employment as a dental hygienist. She was actually working for two different dentist offices at the time. So whatever she was dealing with wasn't affecting her job. And I think that's kind of important to understand, you know, where her mental state may have been. On October 2nd, 2013, Miriam went to work like she had normally done. Her daughter Erica was in daycare at the time, and according to the Washington Post, she would always leave around 5 p.m. so that she could pick up her daughter. And so on that day, October 2nd, she waited for her last patient, and then she left like she normally would. She was also scheduled to be off on Thursday and Friday, and then she was going to work her second job in Brooklyn on that Saturday. So her coworkers described her as normal when she left that day, She wasn't acting strange. She didn't seem to be experiencing any signs or symptoms that anything was wrong. She wasn't upset. Um, One of the coworkers said, she said, you know, have a good weekend. I'll I'll see you next week. And and she left. On October 3rd, 2012, for reasons that are still unknown, Miriam Carey got into her car with her then 13-month-old daughter, Erica, and drove 265 miles to Washington, D.C. There are several missing pieces to this story, and one of which is Miriam's movements on the day that she drove to D.C. There is no information about when she left Connecticut, or whether or not she stopped along the way or she drove straight there, straight there. Now, I punched in how long it takes to get to D.C. from Connecticut. And it's about a four and a half hour drive. So if she had enough gas in the car, she could have possibly driven straight there. But, of course, there's no information about her movements on October 3rd until her Black infinity shows up at a White House security checkpoint at around 2.13 p.m. that afternoon. But what is initially reported about the day's events would not be as clear as the years go by, because initially the police and media described Miriam as a mentally ill woman who purposely tried to breach White House grounds and then led them on a high-speed chase around D.C., leaving them no other recourse except to fire 26 bullets into her vehicle. Now, the early reporting about that day said that around 2:15 p.m. Miriam came to a checkpoint near the White House where she attempted to breach a security barrier that was in place. And after failing to respond to commands from the Secret Service to stop her vehicle, she then makes a U-turn and tries to exit the area. Now, it says that when she makes the U-turn to exit the area, she strikes a Secret Service officer with her vehicle on the way out. And then the Capitol Police, of course, began chasing after Miriam, who was driving towards the Capitol at that point. Now, according to their story, after a few minutes, they are able to catch up with her and basically corner her in. And this is where we see the first footage of that day. And we see Miriam's car surrounded by police. Now, this footage was captured by a gentleman who was working for an international news station and just happened to be filming that day. Now, what we see is Miriam surrounded by police, guns drawn, at least six, seven officers around her car, right? And then Miriam backs up. She backs her car up and hits one of the police vehicles. Um, and then you can see her infinity kind of make a turn and then head away from where the officers are. And they ca- the officers fire eight shots at that point into her vehicle as she's driving away. And then they continue to pursue her. So the pursuit carries on for a few more minutes until Miriam's car crashes into another security barrier. Police then fire more shots into the car. So this brings it to 26 total. Now Miriam had been shot multiple times and was taken to the hospital where she would die from her injuries. Her daughter Erica, miraculously, was not shot, despite the 26 bullets that were fired at the car that she was riding in. And so the news of what happened in Washington began to hit the media. And they would soon identify the person behind the wheel of the car as Miriam, which I think initially shocked almost everyone. No one thought that the person behind the wheel of the car was a woman. Most of the onlookers that day assumed that it was a man. And no shade to the men, but an incident like this usually involves a man. So to find out that it was a black woman and a mom took most people by surprise. And then, of course, having her child in the back seat of the car made it even more surprising. So the media immediately began to dissect Miriam's life. And questions about motive were at the forefront. When the public hears that someone has attempted to breach White House security checkpoints or barriers, they almost automatically assume or think about terrorism, especially in the years after 9-11. It's almost everyone's first thought. So the FBI and the counterterrorism began searching Miriam's home to see if they could determine a motive. They even called in a bomb squad, cleared out her apartment complex. Um, because they were looking to see if there was any connections to terrorism or if she had a bomb in the apartment. But of course, they found nothing, because Miriam wasn't a terrorist, nor did she subscribe to any ideologies that would have made her a terrorist sympathizer. And with those possibilities eliminated, questions about Miriam's mental health began to arise. In interviews early in the days after Miriam's death, Her sister and her mom told the media that Miriam had been struggling with depression. And this led the media to obtain public records um, from police encounters um, that Miriam had that painted a picture of an unstable person. Step into the world of power, loyalty. Now, the police report said that Miriam had called them to report that her neighbors had been surveilling her. There were also calls placed by her boyfriend for various reasons, including locking herself in the bathroom with their child and refusing to come out um, and then disappearing with the child for a period of time. Um, But, you know, police also found medication for both postpartum depression and schizophrenia in Miriam's apartment. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but the postpartum depression that Miriam was diagnosed with was postpartum di- depression with psychosis, which doctors say can cause delusions and hallucinations. But her sisters, however, denied that she was experiencing those kinds of sy- symptoms. And no one who worked with her said they ever witnessed Miriam having delusions or hallucinations. But she had been prescribed medications nonetheless. So she must have been experiencing some symptoms that would cause her doctor to prescribe that kind of medication. But did that have anything to do with why she drove to D.C. that day? Now, there were reports that in one of her episodes, she had accused President Obama of being, you know, one of the spies or one of the people spying on her. Um, And of course, you know, when that information is released, people assume that her delusions must have led her to D.C., Perhaps I guess, to confront president obama i'm I'm not sure, but we don't know. We actually have no idea why she went to d c, and the last people who spoke to her said she was fine, happy even it's almost it's also important to note that these encounters with the police had taken place nine months before she went to Washington, so it wasn't like oh, this just happened a few days ago, or she was ha- she they were it was nine months since the last kind of encounter with the police. Um, but no one can speak to what was going on in Miriam's mind on that day and in her final hours. Now, the Capitol Police complete their investigation and they pretty much determined that the shooting was justified. And they use Miriam's perceived mental state as a motive behind her actions. And to them, it seemed pretty black and white. She had a psychotic break. She was experiencing mental illness. And that's why she did what she did. And they were justified in their actions. But her family didn't agree. And when Miriam's autopsy is finished, it reveals that she was shot five times with all of the bullets entering her body from behind. So Miriam being shot in the back would enrage her family. And they demanded answers. Was shooting Miriam the only way the police could have handled that situation that day? Initially, it seems like perhaps it was. But then you look at the evidence, and the answers to that question becomes less and less clear. Miriam's family eventually hires an attorney, and he begins to raise serious doubts about the shooting. Whether or not they needed to shoot at Miriam 26 times is their only option. Now, the Washington Post releases an article which lays out a more detailed account of that day. And what they find is that what the police initially reported wasn't even exactly what happened. So the Washington Post reveals that The early moments of this incident were not exactly as the initial reporting said. Now, when Miriam turns into the checkpoint, according to the Washington Post, she is told to stop. And instead, she does make the U-turn. And now, why Miriam didn't stop is part of the mystery of this story, but maybe she was just scared. Maybe she figured, if I just make this U-turn and head out, they'll leave me alone. But when Miriam makes that U-turn, a ununiformed Secret Service agent attempts to put a metal barrier in front of Miriam's car in an attempt to stop her vehicle. So this agent was plainclothed and according to the photos, carrying a cooler, like a, a drink cooler. And he grabs a metal barrier that was off to the side and tries to put it in front of Barium's car to stop it. And I'm trying to describe what this is like. This is like the metal bike wrecks that you've seen, you know, over the summer um, for protesting. The cops will use them for crowd control. They'll use them to block off areas. It was really one of those type of bike rack gates. And he tries to put this in front of her car ...while he's out of uniform. And, you know, for all we know, she didn't even know that this was a Secret Service agent or a cop at all. And that's one of the arguments from her family is that when she saw this man, she probably was just afraid and, you know, kept going because she didn't know that he was a cop. And so what she actually does is that she keeps driving and the man almost kind of like puts himself in between her car and he's trying to stop her and she does end up driving you know past the barrier and kind of through the barrier and strikes the man with the side of her car but she doesn't hit him head on and she doesn't even appear to be hitting him intentionally it just he's kind of actually in the way of a moving vehicle and she was already on her way out and that's kind of what the picture shows so that kind of um sheds a cloud on the initial story that she rammed a security barrier. The barrier that she hit was actually a temporary barrier that was placed in front of her car specifically to try to stop her. Um, But police then, of course, began to pursue her car. And it's not clear if initially the police saw that her baby was in the backseat, But when they cornered her near the Capitol, they had to have seen that there was a child in the back seat. Now, did they take that into account for a second, that there was an innocent child in the car? Well, obviously not, because right after they cornered her, they fired eight shots into the vehicle as it drove away. Now, the other justification the police make for their actions is that Miriam was speeding through D.C., But the Washington Post discovered that Miriam wasn't speeding. In fact, they determined that her max speed from the White House to the Capitol, where she was ultimately gunned down, was between about 19 miles per hour and 25 miles per hour, which is a normal speed for traveling in the city. And so that raises the questions, why didn't police just try to chase Miriam out of the vicinity of the Capitol and the White House? They could have allowed her to drive off you know, called for D.C. metro police to try to stop her vehicle elsewhere. But they didn't. They continued to pursue her vehicle. Merriam's car ultimately crashed into a barrier. And it's not known whether or not one of the first eight shots um, entered Miriam's body, but it's likely that it did, and that's why she crashed the car. Now, the U.S. attorney that handled the investigation said that they did not believe any of those initial bullets hit Miriam, although they offered no proof of that. And since they had already fired eight shots into the car, why did they need to fire 18 more shots into a car that was stopped? Miriam didn't jump out of the car. She didn't have a weapon. And her daughter was in the back seat. I mean, it's really a miracle that her daughter was not shot. The Capitol Police policy was that you don't shoot into a moving car unless you are stopping an attack that can seriously harm other people. But Miriam wasn't trying to hit anyone; she was just trying to get away. And in the 2004, the Department of Human Services actually told the Secret Service that deadly force cannot be used simply to stop a fleeing suspect, which is exactly what they did in this case. So once she left the White House checkpoint, it's important to know that she never again attempted to breach another security barrier. The police say that they feared terrorism and that they thought that she could have been a suicide bomber. Now, we can't ignore the fact that something happened that day. And whether or not Miriam was having a mental breakdown or not, in a post-9-11 world, Her initial actions may have been a concern for the Secret Service and Capitol Police. But I don't think that the amount of force used in this situation was warranted. There have been countless people who have breached the White House grounds and were not gunned down. As a matter of fact, just a month before Miriam's encounter, a man actually breached the White House fence, made it all the way almost to the door of the White House where he was tackled and he was carrying a knife. Why was he met with such restraint when Miriam, with her child in the back seat, was shot at 26 times? And once you learn more of the details, like Miriam didn't ram a temporary gate trying to breach the White House security checkpoint, or that the first officer who had minor injuries was plain clothed and basically almost threw himself in front of her vehicle or that the second barrier she crashed into was because she had been shot at eight times, you really start to question more and more why her death was even necessary. The police used fear of terrorism as their main justification for their actions that day. And telling the public that, you know, stopped a lot of questions, telling the public that it was terrorism stopped a lot of questions that people might have wanted answers to, as soon as you say, wait, hey, we stopped the terrorists, everybody is like, yay, great job. And and, and no other questions are, 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 at, are asked. No officers were charged in connection to Miriam's shooting death. And although there was a violation of department policy, no officers were even disciplined for shooting into Miriam's moving car. In fact, the officers were commended for their actions and received standing ovations on the floor of the house. But Miriam's family, however, was left with questions and no answers. And in the new era of Black Lives Matter, Miriam's story often gets left out by the mainstream media. In the wake of the murder of Breonna Taylor, discussions about police violence against Black women became a trending topic. And campaigns like Say Her Name helped to bring Miriam's story back into the light and raised questions about the brutality of her death. On January 6, 2021, a group of mostly white men stormed the Capitol. They attacked Capitol Police officers, sprayed them with bear spray, called Black officers niggers. They destroyed property and did vile things to the Capitol. The whole world watched. And what most people saw was the blatant display of hypocrisy between how the police handled these insurrectionists and how they handled the Black Lives Matter protests that took place last summer. It made some people angry to watch them be handled initially with kick gloves. But for Miriam's family, the pain of the hypocrisy was deep. They want to know why couldn't Merriam have been met with the same restraint that those officers used on January the 6th? But I think we all know why. Black people, including Black women, are perceived as being a threat. And we are met with more force and we are given less sympathy. Miriam did not have to die that day. Had police followed their own policy, she would probably have not been shot. I thought about Erica the most during this story. She's probably still too young to fully understand what happened if she knows anything at all. But whatever Miriam was going to overcome and achieve in her life was cut short when she was shot five times by Capitol Police. Miriam deserved more. Miriam deserved a chance. And Miriam deserves for us to say her name. Thank you for listening to this week's episode we'll be back next week with a brand new story don't forget to leave us a rating on apple Podcasts. it helps our show grow so we can continue to tell these stories like us on facebook and follow us on instagram at black girl gone podcast